Pastor Kevin Davis here, Woodland French Church. Uh, I'm away on a men's retreat this weekend, and the Gideons are sharing at Woodland French Church. And so I thought I would release, you know, very non-controversial topics. Uh, so for the uh, viewing crowd on our YouTube channel, you will find a sermon released um, surrounding the very comfortable, calm idea of the end of the world. And for here, I decided to release a sermon entitled Jesus religion and politics. So for all of you one listeners out there, hope you enjoy this last Sunday of listening. If I haven't offended you, this will be the day. Just kidding. Enjoy. Returning to Mark chapter 12 this morning, and we'll talk about the most polite things in conversation, such as religion and politics today. <laughs> I don't know if, if this is Everyone's experience, I know I'm relatively young, but last election cycle, when Trump became president, I really felt that politics had a direct involvement in my personal life, more so than any election that I can remember. I've been able to vote since 2008's presidential election. And some days I tell myself, well, it seems like politics and federal government are just occupying my mind more than I feel like it should or that it has in the past. Part of that I know was because I was a child <laughs> for the most of my life before, before so. But I'm really capable and interested half the time what's happening in the political sphere. Being a history buff, all you need to do is open up a history book, and it seems like that there are many times when the entire nation was very fixated on uh, the public and the political landscape, so there have been pockets of time where I'm sure that that's the general feeling for people. Uh, but I also live in this digitized age where I can just open up an internet browser and see who President Trump met for breakfast today, or I can open up something called Twitter, and, and politician, they can update at any time what they're thinking. And there are political decisions, as you know, uh, that affect our life, sometimes for the better, sometimes for worse. I remember talking to people back in 2009 and 2010 when the Affordable Care Act came into play, and, and I saw and experienced firsthand what that did for my finances and my health care. So there have always been governmental rulings and decrees and acts and decisions that provoked some to cheer and others to disappointment or even wrath. We've seen since November public responses to the election of our president. Today, in our text, Jesus is approached and he's asked about a political hot-button issue, and in some ways, a political movement in his time. Please stand with me and let's read Mark 12, 13 through 17 together. <clears throat> and they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap Jesus in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought one and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Let's 
Father, we come before your word again, and I confess to you, you blew my mind this week, and I pray that the words that are spoken today are your words and not my own. Father, many of us have needs and wants and desires and conditions that we we would hope that would find some sort of guidance today, and we pray that you would meet all those needs. I know I can't. Father, we're here to hear your voice. As we just sang, come magnify and glorify Christ Jesus the King. Father, would you be exalted in our lives and may the body be edified. Have your way in us. Get me out of the way. Say what you would desire. That's my heart's desire. We pray and ask these things in Jesus and his grace and his name. Amen. Maybe see them. The birth of Christ narrative in Luke chapter 2 opens up on a historical note. Luke writes, in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. A census is being taken, and the census it's referring to is for taxation purposes. Or at least I should say, historically, we know a census was taken by Quirinius, and we know that many people, so that we know how many people we can tax. <laughs> that sort of deal. In Acts chapter 5, verse 37, Luke records a discussion among a council trying to decide the fate of Peter and the apostles. One Pharisee, his reasoning is, is that if Jesus is from God and his following, if that's from God, it will ultimately succeed. But if Jesus and his following is not from God, his following will perish. Like one such man, Acts 5.37, he says, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census. That's the same census by Quirinius that we know, if you read Josephus. And Luke, that's the, the census that Luke describes in Luke 2. And this man goes on saying, and Judas the Galilean drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. Josephus would blame this Judas the Galilean, ultimately, as a key figure, or at least Josephus' sons and successors, that led the way to the War of the Jews in the 60s and AD 70. So why are we talking about Judas the Galilean and taxes? <laughs> some sources are a little sketchy, but some sources say that Judas, who led a revolt and founded the zealot sect of Judaism, the sect who violently wanted to throw off Roman rule, some sources say that Judas, upon entering Jerusalem, was declaring the kingdom of God and that he entered a temple and then he cleansed the temple. And Judas was against this imperial tax instituted by Caesar because it bore the likeness of Caesar. So Judas would say, we only serve God, not Caesar, and so he cried out for revolt and revolution. Declaring a kingdom of God, entering a temple, cleansing it, sounds a little familiar, doesn't it? Jesus, throughout the gospel, has been declaring a kingdom of God. And here, just a few stories back in Mark, he entered the temple in Jerusalem. He called it a den of thieves. He challenged the authorities that be. 
And every subsequent story thus far in Mark has really been a consequence or a result of what Jesus has done. Uh, the Sanhedrin, the highest official authorities of the Jewish establishment, they challenged Jesus' authority. They say, where do you get the authority to do what you just did? Jesus told them the parable of the wicked tenants, in which we looked at over two sermons. Namely, Jesus has declared himself the new steward, the new tenant, and by extension, his body of believers, the, the new tenants of the proverbial vineyard, that is Israel, God's chosen people. And so where we find ourselves today is really a continuation of the attacks by the Sanhedrin against Jesus. We see firstly in our text, and they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. That they there is the Sanhedrin. It's the same day of Mark 12.12. 12. It is the them of Mark 12.1. And then finally the Sanhedrin is listed in Mark 11.27, the chief priests, scribes, and elders. And so here in Mark 12.13 we see that the Sanhedrin is instigating that word sent being the same root word you get for apostle. See, the, the Sanhedrin is sending a delegation, a detachment, if you will. And in fact, in Luke 20, 20 in Luke's telling of this story, he flat out calls this, the Herodians and the Pharisees spies. <laughs> and rightly so. For Mark tells us that these people are here to trap Jesus in his talk. <laughs> there you go. That word trap also catch in some translations. It's only used here in the New Testament. And it is the same idea of catching wild animals in a trap. It's a very violent pursuit. The last time we saw these two awkward sects of Jews together was actually Mark 3 6. <laughs> and I checked. And I touched on Mark 3, 6 in February of last year. <laughs> These are two very different sects of Jews. Pharisees, as you know, are pure law keepers to a T. We've talked about them from time to time. They, they've shown up in Mark 2 to 3. They've showed up in Mark 7. Just as a quick reminder, Pharisees started off being very aware of their uncleanness. They, their sect arose about 200 years before Jesus showed up. And one of my commentators calls them a holiness movement. <laughs> and they formed at a time realizing that disobedience to God has always gotten the Jews into trouble. Novel idea. So mingling with other peoples who are believers always muddled, muddied the purity and the holiness of the Jews. And so the Pharisees really wanted to be in the world, but not of it wanted to reclaim that title of being God's chosen people, a peculiar people, set-apart people, kingdom of priests. Their name means separated ones or holy ones. That's the Pharisees. Now, along with the Pharisees is a group of people that normally probably would not be caught dead with the Pharisees. That is the Herodians. We don't know if Herodians was an actual sect of Jews, who took that name because actually only Matthew and Mark in all of history ever give that title to Rodians. But it likely means, as the name suggests, it is a group of Jews who supported the rule and the policies of King Herod. Pharisees would not like that. <laughs> but both Pharisees and Herodians have a common enemy, Jesus. Hence their awkward alliance. 
Verse 14 goes on to say, And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. First, we know in the broader context of this story that this is nothing but lies and flattery. <laughs> Jesus knows their hypocrisy, so says verse 15. So this means that either the group was lying and trying to conceal their intentions to Jesus, or they could have just been being sarcastic, but that was probably very unlikely in that sort of culture. Nevertheless, the irony is, is that all these are true statements. These are all true statements. Jesus does speak what is true. He is no respecter of person in terms of what he says. He is not swayed by appearances, and he truly does teach the word of God. And in the broader context of our theme today, isn't that a dose of much-needed reality in politics? <laughs> Friends, whenever you and I are bombarded by politics and you and I wonder who do we vote for or what do we vote or what do we say to people weighed down by political decisions and worries, you and I do have and we do serve a master who is true <laughs> and does not care about anyone's opinion. Friends, you and I don't serve an elected official who plays to people's dreams or wins people over with sweet talk and money, but we serve a king who loves us, cares for us, died for us, and wants his best for us, and he truly teaches the way of God. So it's for reasons of a trap that these people, these Pharisees and Herodians, come to Jesus. And it's a trap not just in the question they ask, but it's also how they ask it. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Do you see in the way they ask the question, the same question twice, they're really trying to give Jesus a political box for him to don. <laughs> they, they want Jesus to give a straight answer. Yes or no, yes or no, just say one of those words. Now, perhaps all of you have heard how this might trap Jesus, but if not, they are trapping, uh, there are trapping or damning implications it would have for Jesus. If he said, yes, pay taxes, it might align himself with the Herodians or the Romans that he's law-abiding, but it might alienate the Jews for Jesus, as Jesus takes a more liberal, more detached and compartmentalized view be part of the system and also be part of the religion. Or if he were to say, no, don't pay taxes, it would likely, not likely, it would be bring Romans down on him. Because he's saying resist authority, don't pay taxes. But the Pharisees and the Herodians, they want a simple yes or no answer to their question. They've asked him twice and specifically said, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not, yes or no, and then again, should we pay them or not, yes or no. I mentioned a few minutes ago, though, about Judas the Galilean. And so, in the, the public political sphere, they're probably asking Jesus something bigger. They are invoking a, a symbol, a movement, a political person from Israel's very recent past, and they're asking Jesus, are you the next Judas of Galilee? 
You've cleared the temple. You've talked about the kingdom of God. People call you the Messiah, which is our scriptures, long prophesied ruler in the likes of David, who was to return Israel to its prominence. So what do you say about the imperial poll tax? What do you say about the people who subjugate us? The people who say to the followers, the one true God, call me Caesar, Lord. With your money, proclaim that Caesar is Lord. In some ways, they're asking, are you about to start a revolution, Jesus? And they want a yes or no answer. It's a very political question. It's a very loaded question. And in a question like this, about the imperial poll tax, about the imperial poll tax, let me just back out for a minute and say, let's keep this scripture in context. (laughs) Okay? Some people... Look at this text as a prescription for the relationship between church and state. And I don't see in the text here, nor do I see in Matthew or Luke when they do this story, none of them says, and in this way, Jesus showed what kind of relationship his people are to have with the state. (laughs) I know we can take passages of scripture and other passages and compare, and we can come up with some good principles. But let's just keep this story in context. This is a first century Pharisee and Herodians approaching Jesus, asking him about an imperial tax poll that the Romans were subjugating to first century Jews. But, be reminded though with me, in our opening thoughts, this is a group of people coming to Jesus and they're saying, Jesus, we can't get politics out of our personal life. Every day we're reminded of our subjugation to Rome. Every day we're told to pay this tax, and we can't worship freely. We'll talk about how these coins may have broken the commandment here in a few, but they're asking Jesus, Jesus, shouldn't it go against our conscience? What are God's people to do in a situation like this? I wonder if you've been there. I've been there when it comes to heated political topics that seem to go against my conscience as a follower of God. So while we lean in, hopefully with genuine hearts, to hear what Jesus might say, let's be reminded that the Pharisees and Herodians are here at the behest of the Sanhedrin to trap Jesus. Make sure you give him a yes or no question. Make sure that either response will do detriment to his character. And so they think that they have the right question. Again, a a yes to taxes is an alienation to devout Jews, and and a no to taxes is an alienation to Rome. Either way, he's trapped. What will Jesus say? Verse 15. But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Mark, in writing his account of Jesus, is often a big fan of of irony and symbolism. In some of what my commentators have called acted parables. <laughs> this is one such right now because, because what's interesting is that the Jew, that Jesus was approached by two groups who hate him, the Herodians, I'm sure, could probably care less about the coin tax because they side with Herod. Well, taxes just are a necessity. But the Pharisees came all high and mighty, and they're more than likely trying to get Jesus to say that this is a breach. Of the second commandment. Exodus 20, 4 through 6, describes this commandment. Exodus says, You shall not make for yourself a carved image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. 
For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Furthermore, Leviticus 19 says, Do not turn to idols and make for yourselves any god of cast metal. I am the Lord your God. And this denarius was not a simple picture of Caesar with, you know, with Rome on its backside and a nice little slogan in God we trust. Or, you know, it wasn't Viva la Rome. But in fact, it was easily seen that it could very well be a breaking of the second commandment because inscribed on these coins with the likeness of Caesar was Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of divine Augustus. So here is an inscription hailing the reigning lord and monarch Caesar as a son of God. Furthermore, on the back side of the coin was a picture of Caesar's mother in the inscription, High Priest. I mean, I have to admit, if the U.S. Mint started printing new quarters with Donald Trump, king and son of God, <laughs> and a picture of his wife on the back saying, High Priestess. <laughs> <laughs> I probably wouldn't like those coins. So it is a big issue, and it probably would be a big issue across the full spectrum of the Christian church. Maybe some lightly bothered by it, others completely bothered by it. What is ironic then is that Jesus goes to make his answer. Firstly, who has the coin? Jesus, a penniless traveling rabbi, does not. But the very people who are trying to get Jesus to say yes or no to a loaded question about such a controversial coin, they're the ones who provide the coin. The enemies give Jesus a coin that says Son of God and High Priest on it. Lots of irony there. They give the Son of God and our High Priest a coin that says it. And so here we have two kings. One being Caesar, who is loaded and rich. He demands loyalty of all of his subjects. He has to print coins that call him a son of God and his mother a high priest. Authority over what really was the world at the time. But the other king is penniless and poor, compelling loyalty out of love for his people. And instead of having to print money to tell who he is, he just straight up proves it by his actions. And though he be in his humanity, in his divinity, he does have authority over the entire universe. Talk about that in a minute. Jesus evades political boxes, a yes or no question and answer. He says this, and they brought him a denarius and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the thing that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. This is not a yes or no answer from Jesus. This is not a you should or you should not. Now, at first glance, it looks like you should. You should pay taxes, doesn't it? I mean, Jesus says in a sneaky sort of way, but he looks like he's saying, you know what, it's Caesar's money, whatever, let him have it. So it's not really an indulgent Caesar worship, but it's an underhanded pay taxes type statement. Jesus... I want to zoom out again, because Jesus in the gospel accounts, he is approached many times for interpretation questions. And he's approached by people. Many approach Jesus seeking really one thing, and that is 
What can I get away with? They don't want his true interpretation of Scripture. They just want to say, what do you say I can get away with? The best example I can think of this in Mark is when I preached on the first part of Mark 10 last fall about divorce. You see, the Pharisees in Mark 10 who approached Jesus about divorce, they, they looked at Deuteronomy 24, and they say, Jesus, here's the black and, and here's the white. Do you fall down on the black or the white? And Jesus says, you think divorce is something created by God, intended by God? It's not an intention of God, this divorce. It's a concession. <laughs> Let's not consider divorce and where you can get out of it. Let's consider what marriage is and should be. And so many well-meaning Christians, what they do is they become Pharisees, and the text is no longer Deuteronomy 24, but now it's Mark 10. <laughs> and all the gospel synoptic counterparts, and they say, okay, here's where Jesus says divorce is permissible. And then we've missed the point. All we're doing to Mark 10 is what the Pharisees did to Deuteronomy 24. We're saying to other people, here's the black and here's the white, and where do you fall down? Similarly, Pharisees approach Jesus and say, second commandment, graven image. We live in an oppressed culture where it seems our leaders give us graven images to give offerings to him. Here's the black and here's the white. Are you pro-black, pro-white? Where are you, Jesus? Yes or no? Are you with the Pharisees who do say it's a graven image? Are you with the zealot group who, who proactively resists the coinage? Are you a Roman sympathizer, obedient to the Roman authorities? Where are you, Jesus? <laughs> Just give us the bullet list so all of you know, all of us know your political platform, and we can sign up to follow or to reject. Just give us a bullet list, make it black and white. Jesus does not make it black and white. He, in essence, transcends it. How so? Well, at first he says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And this render is literally not just a gift. But it is a give back to or a return or a restore to Caesar. In other words, it implies that it wasn't yours to begin with. So Jesus is kind of being a grammar ninja. <laughs> He's not really saying give your money to Caesar, but he is saying it's his money. And if he wants it, he wants it. Now, don't don't pharisaicalize. That's a word I made up. <laughs> don't pharisaicalize this text. Don't get your checklist out and say, OK, pay taxes. Don't pay taxes because. The big issue here is what Jesus says next. And he says, render to God the things that are God's. Again, don't do the Pharisee to this passage. Don't say that this is Jesus saying that we can live compartmentalized lives and we can pay taxes and partake in government. And then, and then separately over here, we can pay tithes and, and offerings and partake in church. And they go hand in hand because the crowd is marveling at the end of verse 17 for a reason. And it's not because Jesus has just laid out a logical two-step program to living a Christian's life between church and state. Here's what you can do here, and here's what you can't do over there. Friends, what things belong to God? Psalm 24, verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell with therein. Or dwell therein. John records Jesus saying to his Roman authority Pilate in John 19.11, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Paul writes in Romans 13.1, For there is no authority except from God, and those who exist have been instituted by God. 
So what is Jesus saying here? Friends, as Mark has been telling us the story of Jesus, one of the key words throughout the book of Mark is authority. And Jesus has it. Since Mark 1.22, we've been hearing of Jesus' authority. And since Mark 11 and Jesus entered into Jerusalem, being called the Son of God, and Jesus symbolically closed down the temple and left it, and the Jewish highest authorities have been writing Jesus' case, asking him point blank in Mark 11.28, on whose authority did you do this? And then most recently, Jesus told them the parable of the wicked tenants and reminded tenants aren't in charge. They are just given delegated authority. And the one who is in charge, who owns the vineyard, is God himself. And how Jesus really answers the Pharisees and the Herodians today is not so much a political, yes, pay taxes, or no, don't pay taxes, but it's more of a reframing of their minds. And so Jesus is in some ways saying, whoa, 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 let's just step out from this tiny little dilemma who gets the little coins in their piggy bank who and does not have and does not have religious ramifications and are you a rule breaker or a keeper, Jesus? And let's remember who is in charge here? Who is really in charge here? Render to Caesar the thing that are Caesar's. Religious people get out their checklist, check off, he said pay taxes, he's like the Herodians. He's a Roman sympathizer, but then Jesus says unto God the things that are God's. Religious people have a headache. <laughs> their lead breaks on their checklist. They grip the side of their religious clipboard. And what does he mean here? <laughs> How do you render to Caesar, but at the same time render to God? Because I belong to God. Caesar belongs to God. God's an authority over all things. So... There is irony again, too, because one of the points of argument was about the likeness. Literally, the Greek word icon, where we get the word icon, of Caesar on the coin. Likewise, humanity is made in God's image. Icon. This passage of scripture, and this is why I probably rewrote my sermon 15 times this week, it has been interpreted and used for many, many purposes. I don't want to cast judgment on any interpretation. It has been the source for separation of church and state, rendered to Caesar, state, rendered to God, church. I don't judge it, but I think that ignores the fact that God owns Caesar. With that line of reasoning, though, it's gone the opposite route, and some latch onto the latter, render to God, and so they really get that. God owns everything, including Caesar. So let's just push for a theocracy and get God into the government as much as possible. Which, in a perfect world where sinners did not exist, that would be great. And everybody loved God and everyone did what God wanted, that would be great, but we don't live in a perfect world. If you're looking for black or white answers to politics here, maybe you find it, I don't. But if you're looking for peace with politics, <laughs> I think you will find it. Because what happens is that Jesus walks into this moment, as I said earlier, let's keep, out of con let's keep it in context, first century Pharisees and Herodians approaching Jesus, asking him about an imperial poll tax that Romans were subjugating the Jews over. So it's a big issue. You've been there. Jesus, they're taking our tax money to kill unborn children. Jesus, they're redefining marriage. Jesus, they're enforcing people. And what should be a free state to buy health care, whether they want it or not, or can afford it or not, it's a big issue. Jesus, yes, support it. No, do I fight it. No, do I be at peace about it. What do I do? 
Jesus may not give you an answer that you're looking for. Jesus reminds you, though, of who's in authority and what you are to do with the one who is in authority. Render to God the things that are God's. What does that mean for us? Paul says in Romans 12, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Render to God the things that are God's. But that doesn't answer my political question. Does this help? Do not be conformed to this world. And friends, let me just say, politicking, name-bashing, party-hating, rooting for your guy and hating the opponent, stereotyping, legislating morals, all of that are common tools of this world. I'm not saying do not be involved in politics at all. I'm just saying that sometimes the world's tools grow old fast and do little to change. Rather, Paul says, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Is there another option that God would have you do to be Jesus to his people? Is there transformation that has taken place in your life and by the love of God that allows you to approach people and move about in your political dilemma? That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. I would like to close with a movie illustration that I watched recently. I know we're out of season, but guess what? It was a Christmas movie made by a Christian company. And in the movie, it's a small Alaskan town, and the story centers on a mayor who is a Christian. And so every Christmas, the town would be decorated with nativity set right outside of City Hall, and everyone had a Merry Christmas sign, and what happens? A young local who had been a local left the town years before. He comes back. And having been in the big city and educated beyond his intelligence with more degrees than Fahrenheit, he's moved beyond Christianity, and he's an intelligent, involved atheist now. And what does he want? He wants the nativity sets to be taken down because separation of church and state, and we can't have church stuff on state property. And he wants the Merry Christmas signs to be more inclusive with seasons, greetings, and happy holidays because I'm sure small-town Alaska are full of people who would be offended by such harsh notions as peace on earth and goodwill towards men. And so what happens? Like every Christian, the mayor and many Christians, they take the bait. And they get upset and they want to fight. And they fall under the weight of the impending court battles. And they're put off by this local atheist challenging their long-standing traditions that are Christian. And like many atheists do, this guy starts getting a bit of a following. He sells himself as running for mayor because, hey, if we're more inclusive, we bring in more business and we get this town some money and we can join the ranks of the world. And what happens? The Christians in this movie and in this town realize at some point in time that maybe they're trying to fight the world with the world's tools. We need good lawyers, we need a good legal defense, we need to know our Bibles, and we need to know all the legal mumbo-jumbo, and let's try to beat him at this game. But then they realize that Jesus offers a higher road. That Jesus may not use the world's tactics when he fights. That the Gentiles lord over people, but Jesus says lead by being a servant. And Gentiles have to print money with commendations to their lordship to let you know that they're in authority, but Jesus just does. And we know he's in charge. And so the Christians in their movie, in this movie, they wake up, they take a breath of fresh air, they realize nobody's taking their birthday or Christmas away, and they just do. 
instead of worrying about where the nativity set goes and what the signs say on the businesses, they just start spreading Christian Christmas cheer. They offer to clean local businesses for free. One cute little girl who's a Christian bakes cookies and takes it to the atheist guy. And behind all this mess, and he asks if he wants cookies, and they have found out in the course of events that in fact this atheist had lost a lot of money and he isn't living in the best conditions. And so on their Christmas Eve service, the church brings over a housewarming party to the atheists. They bring furniture and goodies and they allow this legal conundrum to just grow themselves spiritually because they realize who's really in charge. Does that make sense? Friends, I know we live in a very politically polar and politically charged nation right now. And you can easily let every simple, stupid headline about who said what and who did what and what nation has nukes and what minority group has rights and what city allows refugees and should they or should they not. But guess what? Guess who's in charge? And guess where your loyalties, guess where your worries, guess where your service, guess where your body and your trust and your rest and your satisfaction and your peace should be rendered to? Not the politics. God. Render to God what's his. And so when politics invade your life, perhaps the will of God may be for you to vote or not vote, to use the world's tools for his glory and good, but perhaps God wants you to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And maybe that looks like a third option that brings glory to God and goodness to those around you. Because ultimately, who is in charge and who you serve is a lot bigger deal. <laughs> than if your politics are winning or not. Does that make sense? Let's pray. Father, I come before your word often trembling because you spoke it, your spirit inspired it. I pray by your grace that your spirit has spoke today. Father, many of us, myself included, we put too much of our trust and our worries into politics and who's in charge in our nation. Father, we know it's a big deal. But Father, our peace does not or should not rest on who's in charge and whose politics are winning or not. Because, Father, around us are lost souls that need Jesus. And who is with you eternally in your kingdom is a lot bigger deal than how our nation fares right now. Of course, we pray for our nation. But, Father, we appeal to the one who has authority, and that's you. So, Father, would you use this truth in our lives this very week? And would you remind us whenever things are scary to us that we would rely and rest upon your authority? Father, we're so grateful that through Jesus you've invited us in to you and your kingdom. Would we reach others with that gospel this week? Father, we love you and we thank you. 